some far-left journalists took to Twitter celebrating and mocking his death as his family is still in mourning. Even death couldn't conjure respect in some far-left journalists. Rolling Stone's David Ehrlich posted this tweet, quote, So if the news about Scalia is true, how long do we have to wait until we can openly not be sad about it? Don't answer Mel Gibson. In honor of race, who could direct a historical biopic and make you actually want to watch it? I would watch a Mel Gibson biopic, but that's beside the point. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You I'm didn't going- watch uh, I- Passion of the Christ? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't actually, so maybe I should watch that first. Okay, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with a Werner Herzog-directed Lenny Riefenstahl biopic, but mostly about her ski films, because that seems like it would be of interest to Werner. Wow. And I'm Dave with a seven who just keeps interrupting people. Who's going <laughs> to say Neville Dean Taylor's fatty Arbuckle story would be some sort of fat fever nightmare, and I would like to try that. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I am going to say that I would watch a Todd Salons-directed Ted Cruz biopic. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, many, many years from now. I feel like you'd be more of a Jeb Bush, like just deep sadness and like familiar resentment. Mm, perhaps. Is that crazy? No, no. I mean, and the fact that Ted Cruz is like the furthest thing in the world from a Jewish man... Uh, might make Todd Salons not the ideal candidate, but still, I just I'd love just to see a Todd, Joe Lieberman story. Yes, but I'd love to see Todd Salons' sensibility applied to Ted Cruz's uh, I don't know nightmare that is his person. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain, and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 107 for Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. We have a really highbrow on this day for you. On this day in 1911, Puccini's opera Madame Butterfly opened in Italy. I've never seen it, but that's history, right? Uh, we're down at Matt Patches right now because he's on a tropical beach somewhere while we uh, freeze and thaw in New York City and Colorado. I don't know. You're getting blizzards, right? <laughs> no, are you kidding? All our snow's gone. I thought you I had a blizzard the, like last week. Today. Oh, yeah. If it's Colorado weather, it goes really fast. <laughs> so all, all that snow is gone. Well, it snowed two inches in New York and then poured rain all day today. So uh, anyway, anyway, enough about the weather. Let's talk about you guys and... The re- really nice review that I hear we have on iTunes. We have two. Uh, oh. <laughs> the first from Commodore Schmidlap says, Better than Trucker yes. Tom's podcast. Trucker, Better than whose podcast? Trucker Tom. Oh. Trucker Tom's podcast is one of the many podcasts unworthy of being rated higher than Fighting in the War Room in the TV <laughs> film section of iTunes. Yet here I am being forced to do my part in correcting this injustice. To be fair to Trucker Tom, I decided to give his show a listen. If you're looking for talk about which gas station happens to be closest to the McDonald's where Trucker Tom's big rig is parked, Trucker Tom's podcast may be for you. But if you're looking for sublime commentary on TV and film, listen to Fighting in the War Room. That's an excellent review, and I'm really impressed with the research that went into that mm-hmm. and listening to a Trucker podcast. Thank you, Tom. And the Schmidt. Batman, the movie uh, reference in his name. I would really like to hear from the people who may listen to both of our podcasts, who like <laughs> listen to us, but also find Trucker Tom interesting. So please, please chime in. Yeah. Uh, we also have a review from Agent John Plummer, who says, I beseech you, never stop podcasting. You should have billions of followers. 
I'm indebted to the oft and aptly lauded Joanna Robinson, who, on the Justified podcast with Ryan McGee, promoted her then-new and absolutely sublime co-venture with Dave Gonzalez, The Thought Bubble, which in turn led me here to the mothership and the finest quartet of podcasters I've ever heard. I've since devoured all the archived episodes, including those under the original moniker, and have yet to be even the least bit disappointed by your shared commitment to honest, intelligent discourse equaled by your love of culture, mostly, but not always, in cinematic form. The show's inspired format never flags, nor does the exuberant appreciation you all clearly have for each other, or the joy I get in hearing each of you wonderfully specific voices. Much as I enjoy hearing other reviewers compare you to various fours, I can't match you to any, fab, fantastic, or otherwise, because you're Katie Patches, David, and Dave, the best podcasters on the World Wide Web. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's a, that's yes. a lovely review. Thank you. That's that like is... the best picture of iTunes reviews. <laughs> Wait, like that's our that's our best picture speech? No, or like, like it, that's hits, the... it like hits all the bases. Oh yeah, um, it appeals to everyone. Yeah. No one gets mauled by a bear in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, please keep the reviews coming. Uh, we obviously love all of them, and uh, I don't know. Continue telling people about it. What else should we tell people to do besides review it and shamelessly mm. give us attention? Let's see. Oh, let's see. I don't know. <laughs> What's a, well, David, give us a podcast that we want to be ranked higher than next week. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. You, you, I, was, I like when other people find other podcasts <laughs> that annoy them that they're ranked higher than ours. All right. Well, I'll continue picking on Billions right, until I uh, find billions. another one that I'm sick of. Fuck the Billions I podcast. I hear that show's ridiculous. I haven't watched it. But I'm sure the podcast is not as good as this. Well, before I start the next segment and make David tell us all about the witch, David got engaged to get married! Congratulations, David! Hey. Let's make a big deal out of your personal life. I know you love that. Love it. Uh, although, I will say, at pertinent to fighting in the war room related issues and uh, the review that I just read, uh, I, my, my engagement plans involved an impromptu trip to San Francisco, where I had a lovely drinking meal with Joanna Robinson. Hey! Uh, so that was fun. For those uh, of you only listening for Joanna, <laughs> that's, the, that's the mention of her that will keep you coming back, yeah, hopefully. We had a lovely time. She was, uh, was well-informed of my sneaky, sneaky plans and uh, is good at keeping a secret. So... Yes. Cheers to her. Congratulations. Lovely so now that her. you are engaged to be wed, please tell us about this movie that I am too afraid to see. Ah, yes, The Witch. Um, or as the guy, uh, Ralph Einson, who whose name and face you will certainly remember from Game of Thrones, would say, The Witch. I don't know. His voice is incredible. It sounds like it's like this deep croak that sounds like it was scraped off the battlefields of Westeros or something. Oh, God. Um, but, uh, and it is used to full and glorious effect in this movie. The Witch is a film that you've probably, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard uh, either Matt or myself talk about for a while because we saw it very early in the morning at Sundance last year in 2015. Um, and it set a, a bar that I don't think anything I've seen in Sundance has managed to clear since. Um, it is a horror film that came out of nowhere. Uh, I was only was only alerted to it because my friend Sam Zimmerman, who used to work at Fangoria and now works at the horror streaming service Shudder, 
was like, you, you got to go see this. Like, just just go wake up early and go see it. Uh, and I was like, I'm all right, not trust you. Uh, and I'm glad that I did. Uh, directed by a guy named Robert Eggers, who is sight unseen, you know, sight unseen, I assumed was, pro- I don't know where I thought this guy came from. This movie feels like it came out of some yowling hell pit, uh, if not the <laughs> well-manicured brain of a and face of, of, a, of a guy uh, from Brooklyn, and rather nondescript gentleman who uh, I actually met earlier this evening at an Apple talk that I hosted um, and uh, was not at all who I thought he would be, but was very, very uh, uh, kind and, and articulate. Anyway, um, this film... <laughs> it's probably better for your talk that he didn't turn out to be a yowling monster from the <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> it is. Um, the Witch is a... It's branded as a New England folktale. It is set before the... Salem Witch Trials in 1692, so probably 30, 40, 50 years before that, somewhere in New England. It centers around a Calvinist Puritan family uh, who, when the film begins, is being banished from their plantation for reasons that are never revealed, but uh, um, probably have a religious bent of some kind to them because they're a very pious family. The father is played by Ralph Einstein. Is, uh, so he's a, he's a very pious and devout Christian of the uh, fundamentalist bent, but unfortunately that in, in trying to be the best God-fearing Christian that he can, uh, he sometimes falls into a few failings as a, as a man, as a father, as a patriarch uh, of this family, which quickly falls into disarray once they move beyond the village walls where they live on the lip of a forest and minutes, mere minutes into this relatively short movie. Um, the youngest, or sorry, the oldest daughter, who's played by this newcomer named Anya Taylor-Joy, who is a huge standout in this movie. Um, her name is Thomason, and she is playing peekaboo with the youngest of the five children of the family, the baby. And uh, as anyone who's seen the trailer might remember, as soon as she removes her hands from her eyes, the baby is gone. But oh The Witch is not the kind of movie that uh, wants you to, wants there to be any mysteries to what happened to this baby uh, it is not a whodunit, maybe it was a wolf, we'll tease it out for 60 minutes. No, the scene immediately following, and again, this is all within the first eight minutes of the movie, watches these... Uh, I want to use all sorts of nasty language that applies to the character, not the, I'm sure, very genial 90-year-old woman who plays her in, in <laughs> shots where she's largely obscured, um, or shot like the Goya painting, Saturn devouring his sons. Uh, but <laughs> this this nag of a creature uh, takes the baby into the woods, uses a pestle and mortar to grind it into a pulpy mush, and slathers her body with its blood. Uh, and then it's like, well, this is the witch. This is this is uh, <laughs> this is the kind of movie that it's bracing you for. Um, and what follows from there is you see this family sort of tear itself apart um, through. You know they're so they're afraid of con- of confronting the darker elements both of themselves and of the world around them, and in doing so, it sort of hastens their decline. There's a huge strand about uh, Thomason's burgeoning sexuality and how that, like so much of human desire and human nature, is seen as uh, as tantamount to original sin and, and tried to stamp out. Uh, and the fa- does the family know the witch kidnapped their baby? Were they aware of that from the beginning? We are aware before they are, but. Okay. Uh, They are, the the moment at which they all become hip to the witchcraft is very (laughs) satisfying. 
Um, and the movie does really satisfying things with the discrepancy between what we know and what the characters know, um, at least at first, before it sort of just giddily takes you both, you and the, and the family and the film alike, uh, together to places far more demented than I was ready for it to go uh, and enjoyed enormously for, for going. I mean, this movie is one of those movies where like, it, it's so intense over the last 30 minutes or so that you just are, I found myself just sort of laughing nervously at everything that was happening because I could not believe the choices that it made, its, it's unwillingness to repent for those choices. This is a completely uncompromised vision. It's shot like a Kubrick, like Stanley Kubrick's take on The Crucible. Uh, the director would say that his favorite scary movies are, are, are by Ingmar Bergman and some things like Cries and Whispers. So do not expect, while there are jump scares, there are only two or three, and they are uh, used sparingly enough that they, they are just phenomenally effective and sort of remind you how cheap most of the ones are in your standard horror fare. But this is really the sort of horror that is made to get under your skin and and sort of uh, stay there. And uh, but is there a is there a, like I'm trying to think is like if I like Rosemary's Baby would I like this? Like I'm too yeah. scared to see this movie in general. But like I'm trying to think of what kind of horror fans would flock to this. If anyone Rose- is anyone going to go see it? I hope so. It's A24's first wide opening. Um, oh. They've never opened the film wide before in its opening Even weekend. Spring Breakers didn't open wide? No. Um, Spring Breakers had a long platform release, like uh, at least a two-week platform. This is opening wide, so I certainly hope for their sake that it does well. Uh, but it's a movie that I love and have been um, – this was a movie that was originally going to open on DirecTV for them. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, and now is opening wide. So uh, – I, I hope I think you know. There's this weird aversion you see with it follows. You see with the Babadook, where audiences can sort of smell horror that is going to deliver more than just the sort of physiological jolts that are advertised. Where you can throw popcorn to each other and call it a night. Um, they seem to sense when something is going to make them work a little bit, uh, and uh, are as afraid of it as uh, I am when I sit down and, and sort of but avoid the theater altogether. Those movies tend to underperform, whereas things like. Um, I don't know, The Pyramids or whatever other garbage PG-13 horror movies you can think of, you know, blitz in. The paranormal activity franchise. Sure, and claim like a completely ridiculous opening we can take and then uh, immediately fall off a cliff. And I I think A24 would be phenomenally happy if The Witch opened $25 million and then then plunged 70% next weekend. Um, But this is not that kind of movie. I think the word of mouth will really be the best thing for it. Uh, but it's, it's not, it's a, it's a good, you know, I, I've probably mentioned this line on multiple occasions on the show. I, I tend to re- reference it more and more as I get older for whatever reason, but Jack Horner and Boogie Nights, or not Jack Horner, Ricky Jay looking to Jack Horner and saying, you know, you made a real movie, Jack, when they're <laughs> looking at his latest <laughs> porn. Uh, horror has been so ghettoized that when you see a movie like this, that is not just trying to, to give you those jolts, but is a, is a serious a ferociously intelligent movie about real things told with weight and brilliant performances. Uh, also, in addition to the actors that I named earlier, um, what's her face? Katie, uh, fuck, her last name. She's also from Game of Thrones. She plays Lady Aaron. Um, she was in oh. Red Road by Andrea Arnold. Um, oh, and I'll look it up while you talk. Thank you. She plays the mother <laughs> of the family and is just so perfect. And then the movie also has some of the most demonic animal turns I've ever seen. There's the, the goat. Yeah, can you tell me about the goat Kate, without Kate spoiling Dickey. anything? So there's a goat. Oh, the, yeah. There's a goat in the movie named Black Phillip uh, who 
Ralph Fiennes and Sentinite had two modes in real life, uh, which were being asleep and attacking his groin. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you've seen the film, that checks out. Uh, it's a, the goat is long for for you know for as long as Satanism has really been around, has been associated as a symbol of the devil. Uh, and there's these two demonic twins, the other kids in the family, that are creepier than the kids from The Shining ever were, and run around singing <laughs> singing to Black Philip, and eventually. Eventually, Black Phillip gets involved in the action in ways that I would never dare to spoil. But uh, uh, there's also a demonic hare, which is... Like a rabbit? Like a rabbit. I made the mistake of calling it a rabbit tonight and was quickly corrected. It is a hare. Mm. Um, Mm. And apparently that's part of the witch folklore that never really made its way over the Atlantic, but was very popular in England. And uh, when they close in on that rabbit's beady eyes, it is... Quite scary looking, but uh, you know, I, Katie, I think this is a movie that you'd be able to get through. Um, I, I think yeah, you would feel sort of I, fortified for seeing it. I survived the Babadook. I, I can see this. I might need to watch it at home. Well, I with think all that, the lights I on. actually I think that the Babadook is pound for pound a lot scarier than the witch. Mm. Um, but I think uh, the 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 Babadook certainly made me a lot more stressed out than the witch did. But mm, the witch yeah. is more fun, and its uh, its last twenty minutes or so really can't be topped. Um, I has, do know exactly what you mean about when a horror movie gets to that point where you laugh at things that yeah. like you can kind of just enjoy the craft of it. I do like that about. Well, it's not—it's not that you're laughing at it in the way that you would like Final Destination, where you're sort yeah, of laughing the, at like, it. You're so wrapped up in it, like yeah. you're laughing at the fact that you are so wrapped up in this yes. thing that you know is fake. Yes, uh, it's really satisfying stuff. It's as good and as well directed. And the attention to detail is, I mean, the attention to detail in itself is in a vacuum, doesn't do anything for anyone. But when it com- contributes to an illusion that's as complete as that of this movie, which for $3.5 million creates such a uh, coherent vision of the 17th century, it- it's astonishing and worth calling attention to. Robert Eggers used to be a production designer before he became a filmmaker, um, and his practice certainly shows uh i love this movie enormously i really can't imagine that a better horror film of even the semi-typical variety will come out uh this year this was also the best horror film of last year for anyone who happened (laughs) to see it so uh it's really really phenomenal and it should be playing at a theater near you so go see it Deadpool made like $150 million over the weekend. And yeah, I have domestic. N- yeah. Uh, well, did it open anywhere else? Like, it's not going to play in China. Nah. <laughs> I think it, you know, opened in like Europe or somewhere, but it has $284 million worldwide as we speak. That, okay. I, every, every number associated with this movie completely blows my mind. How the hell did Deadpool make $150 million? Oh, uh, well, that's going to be the thing that a lot of people are going to be guessing by making a lot of horrible decisions with future superhero movies. Oh, my God. I'm already so unhappy about it. And I but, haven't I seen mean, Deadpool. If I had to... I'm just dreading the other worse version, the knockoff versions that, think that people like less. Anyway. That's true. And I am surprised that audiences took to Deadpool as much as they did. Uh, even having like read the script and being familiar with the character... And, you know, sort of the advertising uh, 
pushing me in one direction, but always thinking that it was going to be, you know, a much more traditional sort of comic book origin story just told through, like, this crazy flashback. I was prepared for that, but I wasn't prepared for audiences to dig it as much as they did. Like, I saw it in the theater, what, on Friday night that was full with, like, dudes that were, like, maybe 17 and their girlfriends, and everybody dug it, and that's specifically the audience. The fact that it's drawing in so many more numbers, I think just means that, like, the way that superhero movie fatigue that we thought, you know, maybe in the past might have killed off this trend is really just finally starting to manifest different types of movies very slow. I was wondering if the superhero fatigue thing meant that like it's almost like getting airplane or naked gun or something where it's like oh we've had all these different kinds of this movie and now here's one that's making fun of it and we're like this is what we this is our reward for having gone through all these superhero movies that are the same is something that's gonna like tease this whole thing we know really well yeah I think so or just at least being used to the idea that audiences don't need to necessarily have their hand held through origin stories is something that like everybody's just catching on to and Deadpool took it a step further to somewhere where like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or Ant-Man went and just straight on uh, let the character talk directly to his fans but- so previously like uh, the way superhero movies are made is it's sort of like bringing a character to the general audience this is the first one that sort of like just allowed the character to be what the fans wanted it to be and for some reason the general audience came to it but this is this feels like more than any other marvel or uh, fox or whatever origin story like an origin story that is leading fans through it by the hand and breaking the fourth wall only exacerbates that feeling for me i think my many frustrations with deadpool which i hated uh are all <laughs> or for the most part, centered, mostly centered around the idea that uh, it wants to be, or wants at least you to think that it's a subversive take on uh, these superhero movies. But in at the end, it is maybe the most generic origin story of them all. I mean, it, it hits all of those same beats. It just tells you that it's hitting them, uh, which I found sort of insulting and offensive because uh, it is... All of these Marvel movies are aware of exactly what they're doing, but this one is telling you that it's aware of how lazy it's being, and then going, look over here, and just doing exactly the same thing, and being just as lazy as uh, the movies that it's making fun of. I mean, um, But isn't that like the Seth MacFarlane humor that we've been like... You know, inundated with for a long time, like people are kind of used to that as being a language. Seth MacFarlane tells funny jokes from once once in a while, at least on Family Guy, and there are almost no laughs in Deadpool. So I, I, I mean, disagree with that, <laughs> but I mean, I, I get what Katie's saying that it might just be a level of humor, but like the James Gunn's Super is the movie that you know actually talks about the issues that you know. A, superhero movies should talk about if they want to be like modernist or postmodernist and actually pay attention to what they're doing deadpool just is interested in sustaining the high of seeing the character immediately in action through the rest of the film and whether or not that works for you is completely based on things like whether or not you catch the in jokes or whether or not you like to see ryan reynolds you know ham it up i used to think i I mean i don't think it's structurally ham it up but uh, that was back in his van wilder days but hey he's back now man yeah but i I thought the the sort of like shabby like post tarantino 
structure of an hour and a half or an hour and a half and then like an hour in the film we're still watching him fall off that goddamn truck as he cuts back and back and back to where we are where we started um and it's just killing what little momentum the movie has for it in the first place uh i but i you know i think that this is my my issue with the movie is that it it was budgeted. I mean, one of the reasons that its box office take is so impressive is because its budget was so small. It was budgeted for, for a movie of its ilk. It was budgeted at less than $50 million. And you can see that in every minute of the film. The CG is atrocious. The action spectacle is no scale to it. Uh, they even make fun of it at one point, you know, in one of the mo- moments where I did laugh, where they go to uh, Charles Xavier's school and point out that the movie could only afford to have two X-Men uh, in a rather big house, which... It who is, are the X-Men who were in it, by the way? Uh, Negasonic, Teenage Colossus, and Colossus. <laughs> so uh, no one nice. who's been in the current X-Men movies. No. There's not, right. it, it's not like an official crossover. Okay. Anyway. Except for Stan Lee. Did we talk about Except this last Lee. week? We did talk about, we did we talk about, about this movie. I'm hearing myself speak, and I'm saying the exact same things I did. So I apologize no, what I wanna, What I just want to talk about <laughs> is, is like, just the incredible success. Of, like, I'm looking at Box Office Mojo. Deadpool made in its opening weekend more than the entire run of every other Ryan Reynolds starring movie except The Proposal. But don't, could it be, and it beat out the majority of the R-rated superhero films in the same way. It's, it's just like... Could it be that basically people, the, the, Well, that its success is, is a result of superhero fatigue? That people were more than ready to see a movie that took the piss out of superhero that's movies? What I, that's what I was thinking. That like people want I mean, something... That they're sick of the earnestness and they want something really... Uh, you know, meta about it. I don't know if earnestness is the right word, but I do think we might. I mean, this spells big problems for the Warner Brothers movie universe, which is, you know, everybody says no jokes, and they're like, no, we're going to have some jokes. But it's like, it's, if anything, I think Deadpool says that, you know, grit for grit's sake might be finally over. Like, it's an extreme bloody movie, but it's also like winking and about dick jokes. So it's much more like everything else that's tried to be R-rated superhero has been like Watchmen or Blade or 300 and been really self-serious. And I think this is now the end of that. (laughs) Two of those movies were directed by one guy and the other was like 15 (laughs) years ago. So um, I think that your point is right on the money. Um, And I would be worried if I were about to come out with another Zack Snyder superhero movie. Or if you were Zack Snyder. Or if I were, well, yeah, if I were Zack Snyder, I'd probably don't know if i'd have the brain capacity to be worried about myself but um i i think that yeah there is a fatigue driving this i just i think that like that is at the root of whatever interest that i had in the movie and i was just disappointed that it didn't reward that interest that it didn't take uh the piss out of superhero movies it just sort of wanted to wanted to have it both ways and make fun of them while becoming the thing that it was mocking and that was frustrating for me but i do think that it it does have a large uh, part of the large thing to do with its success. Um, and I don't think that attempts to replicate it as easily as many articles recently have suggested are going to be successful. Um, I think, that Oh yeah, there it's will be, be yeah, I mean like there will be profitable R rated superhero movies. If they make the next Wolverine movie R rated as a, they've said that they might, um, you know, perhaps that will do well for them. I'm not saying that it's all going to be failure from here on out. I'm just saying that I think, uh, to, to bottle this one moment in time, this one film that um, came along when people were hungry for it um, is a fool's errand. But I do think that because Deadpool 
was really more of a proof of concept than it was a movie, uh, people are going to be a lot more primed to see a sequel, um, to see a full-body, better-funded sequel, um, and that Deadpool 2 is probably worth investing in. Uh, Dave, you know about comics. What other R-rated superheroes are we going to see? Um, well, they're going to add... I mean, okay, this is just me guessing when I say sure, yeah. it's for sure. Uh, Channing Tatum's Gambit's going to become much more extreme. Uh, Fox is, that is a going good idea for to, that character? I mean, it's something that you could do. He's a character that's <laughs> capable of stretching to that. I'm just not sure if, you know, make him... But, you know, more intense is the thing. And then also their team movies might shift a little bit of focus to uh, X-Force instead of traditional X-Men if Apocalypse can't make the old school characters revive uh, as much as uh, Deadpool did on his own. So a team that involves Deadpool instead of bringing the X-Men to this crazy area, but focusing a little bit more on an R-rated team. Yeah, I would assume if I'm a teenager who loved Deadpool, I would see the trailers for X-Men Apocalypse and say, hell no. But that's what yeah, that's what everybody's worried Apocalypse about. looks bad. I think everybody that's not Disney Marvel because they're just too big to stop and worry and because they have net, uh, Netflix's Daredevil to sort of, you know, add some seriousness to their line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that everybody else, though, probably a little bit concerned about what Deadpool means for the rest of the superhero year. Well, Fox went from Fantastic Four to Deadpool, so good on him for uh, getting out of that skid. Yep. Turned into it. segment is inspired by Keith, who left a comment on fightingintheworldroom.com, which is something we encourage you to do. Please start conversations with us, and we may use them for segments like this. Uh, so Keith basically was talking about his experience in an undergrad student in journalism and film criticism and kind of being talked out of going into that career by a professor who said that film criticism was doomed and journalism was imploding, all of which I think we would say was pretty evident when in the early 2000s when we were also in college. Um, but mm-hmm. he wanted to know what our careers have been like in this supposedly doomed industry. He said, I know that with film criticism at large, transition is a seeming constant. I was wondering, oh, he wanted to do it for a quarter quill. Uh, if you could all talk a little bit more directly about the professional landscape looks like today compared to when you were first considering a job in the field of film criticism and we're just getting started. Um, and obviously, as, as I was talking about before the show started, we've been doing the show long enough that we've all changed jobs. We've kind of had really different perspectives on this world of writing professionally about film. Dave, you've done a really interesting kind of half version of that and half an entirely different career, which is probably the more yeah. stable thing to do. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, I think film the saying that film criticism is dying has been a constant the entire time we've been doing these jobs, and yet we all still somehow have jobs. But I, I don't know if I would argue that film criticism still isn't dying. Like, well, I also think that, just reading this email, the easiest, and the, the easiest position to be in to say that the field you're in is dying, and certainly the one where, that you're most likely to hear that from, are from people who are employed 
Uh, I think that it's so it's so difficult. I mean, at the end of a, of a long day when you're so tired and you look at someone who uh, is trying to get where you are and can't rack your brain as to understand why, um, it's you imagine how difficult it would be for you to start from the bottom again, um, even to get to whatever position you or I or anyone might be at right now, whether low or high or whatever you would consider it to be. Uh, and you're just like, I don't know. I don't even know where I would begin right now if I had to start over. I don't know by what turn of events it is that Well, I you know too here. much now. Like, I, the reason that I got where I am is because I didn't know enough when I started and wind right. up in everything by accident. Yes. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> replicate it now. Yeah, for better or worse. I mean, I think that there are a lot of things I learned that you know, I would have done differently, but I also think that uh, when you don't know what it is that you're getting in for, you are a lot more reckless and uh, uh, you stick your neck out a lot longer and things happen as a result of that. So, so what, did, what did you do that you felt like you were sticking your neck out that, that served you well? I don't know, but it's like the things – like I did things – there are a lot of things that you do when you're starting out that you have to do because it's the only work available to you. But um, Like working for free? Like working for free. Like I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I just think the circumstance – I don't – I. It's all such a blur at this point, but I, think, <laughs> I, I feel like uh, um, it's it's just hard to be like, wow, I can't. It's like I always think about it like like high school, and I'm like, this is I don't know why my head is going to this place, but I'm like, you know, I, I got up, uh, I had to be at school at seven fifteen five days a week. I was there until seven at night because we did all sorts of extracurricular activities. Um, I slept for like three hours a night. I did that for five days a week for four years. I have no idea how I did that. I could never do it again. But at the time, that was all I knew of the world. Um, mm. And so that's really enough to get you to push through it. Um, it's a lot easier to keep striving up than it is to fall down, I think, in any walk of life. Uh, and so I think oftentimes, you know, people who have Again, I hesitate to say that I've accomplished anything, but people who have uh, done certain jobs successfully are, remained employed. Yeah, I don't know. Are just are often not in the best position to give people advice that get there because they're usually the ones doom saying. And well, uh, I mean, I do the doom saying because, like, you know, if you want to ask me about being a professional film critic, I don't really know anything about it because I've never been a full time film critic. Like every time I have written film reviews, I mean, my first job was at this trade publication where I was allowed to write reviews, which I was delighted by, but I was the editorial assistant who was also entering databases and doing all kinds of stuff. And then at Cinema Blend, I was reviewing movies, but only when I had time from running the website. Like there's right. there's no, like film criticism has never been a priority in any of the jobs that I've had. And I love the jobs that I have. And I, you know, the idea of being a, full, a full-time film critic I think is still, it's, it's possible, but it's still pretty laughable You're writing criticism all the time, not when you're just writing a proper film review that goes on Rotten Tomatoes and gets a star rating or what have you. Um, you know, everything you write is criticism of some degree. Yeah, well, and that's the, that's the way that it's been redefined in the time that I think, yeah, I think it started before any of us were in this job, but it's really been part of it that film criticism is not sitting there and reviewing your film. It's writing about box office reports and about casting news and superhero trailers. It's all part of the this, this system of conversation that has moved to Twitter. That's kind of all over the place now, but it's uh, it's definitely beyond the format of the review. Yeah, I mean, I, I think despite everything that I said earlier in the segment, if we were in a different line of work, I might be singing a very different tune. I mean, if we were in investment banking, not that I know the first thing about the investment banking world, but uh, you if know, you did, we'd all be rich. Exactly. Um, if we were in a different line of work that did sort of create a clearer trajectory. You know, it would be easier for us to say, do this, do that. Um, 
I think uh, if you want to be a film critic and can put a sentence together and don't know how to do anything else with your life, then you'll probably be okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's long, it's long uh, you know, it's, it's, you just have to be flexible, I think. I mean, Katie, it's exactly what you were saying. You were at a trade site, you did this one thing that you liked, then you parlayed that into something else that you liked, and you could run the site, which entailed doing a number of different jobs, each of which you were very good at doing, and that, uh, you know, a few people had that skill set. If you can become sort of a Swiss Army knife, I think that you'll, like, like a Plinko game, you'll fall into yes. an okay category for yourself. Yeah. Well, Dave, you have had gainful employment outside of all of this for a long time, but you keep writing about movies on the internet. Uh, why? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's like a different... I guess the, my different perspective is that I don't have a lot of advice on how to be like monetarily successful if you want to do journalism and film criticism as a career. But if it's like something that you really enjoy and you need to like worm your way into the system, if you have all the time in the world to worm your way into the system because you have something else going on, which thankfully is what happened to me, um, I found it just like really interesting to see how people uh, have stretched what I would call, you know, film criticism or pop culture criticism beyond like the written review. Because like the honest thing is that I'd love to you know, find people that I like to read who have interesting ideas. But when I find those things, you know, it's very rarely like a Tumblr post on a text only Tumblr. What it is is something more like, you know, uh, Star Wars ring theory, you know, buys that out and just starts tweeting it out and goes in forums or like what I did with the lost project where I was just watching lost over and over again and wanted to see what would happen if you only watched the flashbacks in order but I think and those like, sort of like investigations, or David, your end of the year montages. Well, it's, mm-hmm. it's exactly some sort what, of way. Exa- I think what David's saying to me, at least, is is that he would, you know, he he may not want to do this stuff for free, um, but a lot of the stuff he does, you know, he has a day job and he does the stuff that he does because he loves doing it, and like those video things that take exponentially more of my time than anything else that I do uh, related to movies. Um, I don't get paid for, although, you know, they, it's all part and parcel of the system that raises your profile and gets you on people's radars and jobs and so on. Uh, but it was like the other day, my mom was like, what would you do if you, if money wasn't an issue? And, uh, you know, if, with your time, like, what would you do? And it was like, no matter what future I could envision for myself, it, it was too much a part of what I enjoy doing, what was writing about film seeing movies being a part of this community um and so you know i think that if you can enjoy doing it and you want to supplement that you know you want to supplement that with other things to pay the bills but if you enjoy doing it you'll that will be reflected in your work and well and the you know this podcast is an example of a way to do that i think most of the criticism i do now is on this podcast and i get to see movies still professionally like i'm still going to screenings and everything but I mean, like you were saying, Dave, like the amount of media in which you can do film criticism and conversation have grown so much, so much since we started doing this. Like, you know, none of us thought about having a podcast when we would decide we're going to write about movies on the Internet. Yeah. Oh, I guess I guess to be more practical about like starting off points, here's things that I've learned outside is that there are certain free jobs that you really shouldn't take. Uh, like I wouldn't take a job like rewriting news stories anymore or like summarizing them for a posts. That was I totally my first would job. take that. 
I mean, yeah, but I don't think that's a good place to enter anymore. Where I'd enter in now is I'd try to be the person that goes and, you know, puts the recorder on the table at the press conference because then at least you're getting in to see, you know, screenings and your publicists are getting to see your face. And mm. I think, like, that's a lot more of a step in the right direction. And that's, there's still a lot of shitty jobs, like, being on the in, red carpet. That's, that's you saying someone in New York or L.A., though. Well, right, I'm saying that would be a good place to start if you're in, like, one of these areas. Or, or even if you're doing something like transcription, I feel like you're in a better place to ingratiate yourself than if you're just regurgitating something that uh, somebody else has done, which I guess is exactly transcription, <laughs> but you'd be surprised how, like, uh, you know, thoughtful people have been uh, if you do some transcription for them. Oh, man. I, your next idea. Transcription would be low on my list of things that I would think you could parlay into something more exciting, but I do think that, you know, while being in New York and L.A. is an enormous, enormous, enormous advantage, um, if you do something, I, I think it's still more of a meritocracy at first, at least these days, than it may have used to be. Because, you know, back in the Ain't It Cool News days, when people were just getting started, anyone who was going to see a movie and then write about it had a voice. I mean, we all have voices, but that was uh, privileged in its way. Um, And now, because of the confluence of voices, there needs to be a reason for something to stand out a little bit more than it used to be. And I think that if you write something that people like, and can whether it's medium or you can find a paying home for it, whatever the case is, and yeah. people see it, it can accelerate very quickly into well, people knowing who you are and wanting to read what you have to say. And what's really leveled that playing field is television, because there's you know most of the time, I mean, sometimes crit, uh, critics will get screeners, but a lot of the times they don't. And everyone on the internet is reacting to what happened on Game of Thrones at the same time. So if you have the better take on it, even if you just watched it on HBO with everybody else, you can get ahead of what someone wrote at Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone or something like that. Like there's a oh, lot actually, of I want to jump on there. that. Yeah, I want to jump immediately on that. Just reaction, pop culture reaction is really liberating because these things that get so popular, whether they be movies, TV. I even listen to Hearthstone podcasts, a card game I play on my phone. Um, but just the fact that if something new comes out, you instantly want to know what everybody else knows and have a conversation with it. And in the world of the internet, podcasts and blogs have been a great way to do that. And I've you know, a lot of the people that are beating us on the TV and film podcast list are these reaction things to shows or to movies. And that's just because there's so much of a fever for it. So if you're looking to like maybe build an audience quick and you love, you know, like The Walking Dead, if you are the person that has something good to say about The Walking Dead, we've been waiting for you. But I also think that like, you know, if, if the way I got started is any indication um, and I, I helped a few people get started um, Oh, someone just tweeted at me. You are a scumbag of a human being for this. Just why? Your soul rots from the inside out as you tweet hateful garbage. Oh, uh, what did you tweet? I've gotten a lot of tweets like that Was it today. about Ted Cruz? No, it was about Scalia. Um, oh. It's a day tweet. <laughs> anyway, uh, so don't do that. Uh, or do. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, you can make a name for yourself among a... Uh crazy conservatives. Yeah, I'm not going to get a job That J.J. Abrams for, Comic-Con joke really right. had legs. <laughs> I'm not going to get a job writing for Breitbart anytime soon unless, <laughs> unless I'm writing a column like, why a former liberal new movie critic decided to renounce You'll be there as the liberal punching bag. New York values. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my first job came from necessity. Somebody needed someone to cover some panels at Comic-Con, which I know for some people listening is the last place you'd ever expect to find me. But uh, I happened to be going then, and, and so um, I volunteered for it. I think a lot of the jobs that I 
took at the beginning that I helped originate for other writers were because I needed someone to do something or someone needed someone to do something that only I could mm-hmm. do or that I was willing to do because I was in the right place at the right time. Um, again, one of those reasons why I think that uh, um, not living in New York and L.A. can be a problem. But if you're going to a festival, if you're going to South by Southwest or something like that, or like one of those second tier festivals that has movies that are worth covering but are not Sundance or Toronto or Cannes where all of the outlets have people for sure. Um, that can be a really good opportunity to say like, oh, you're looking for a stringer to review something or do this interview or something and then just do that yeah. well and press an editor somewhere and they'll keep giving you work. Interviews are way more likely than reviews. Like for me, I've learned a lot about freelancing. I've never freelanced, but I use freelancers and having a freelance review is incredibly rare for us. But an interview or something like that or like someone who is in that town or someone who's able to go talk to this person or someone who I know is willing to do the legwork. Like there are freelancers who I, you know, I'll have an idea of being like, I really want to know about this historical thing. And someone who I know has a good track record for doing that work, I'll bring them something like that. So like that kind of willingness to do the thing that you are good at and passionate about and how you can translate it into something that people want to pay for, even if it's not a review, there's a lot of ways to do that. Mm. Yeah. I also like the idea of going local if you can. So like if you're by a festival or if you attend an event that you know is awesome, you know, figure out a way that you could, you know, pitch that up. But like Katie is saying, you also have access to creatives in your area for God knows what reason, no matter where you are, you know, whether it be, you know, an old crazy cinematographer that retired or like an actress that, you know, had a part once. It's, it's an interesting way to sort of figure out, I guess, what your resources are if your resource isn't like a topical niche. Yeah. Because it's kind of like, I'm not sure if like... If you're given the choice between hiring somebody you've, like, hired before for something or somebody who has, like, a reputation of knowing a lot about a topic, you still go for the person that's done something, right? Yeah. Yeah, because so you like, want to know, no know that they're good to work for. You want to know they'll turn something in on time. Like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll assign things to someone who I don't know a lot of the time if they have a good idea. But, like, it's, you know, if it's something that is big or that I want, they, I need to trust someone on it, someone who I know already. Yeah, but I I'm just wondering if, like, the ways, yeah, if the ways we got into the industry still exist, or if it was mm. long enough ago now that those all aged out. I mean, because I, I like started on like porn and gossip blogging <laughs> and worked in through the blogging angle, not through the well I movies started, angle. I started at Cinema Blend by recapping Hell's Kitchen. I basically emailed them and said I wanted to do something, and they were like, "Okay, great." That was how Cinema Blend tested out new writers: is to assign you to a recap that you did 100 percent for free. Um, and I think that was still the policy even when I left there. Um, but I don't know how much that exists anymore. I don't know how much people care about recaps. Mm. They launched a lot of careers, though. Mm. Yeah. Well, it was like at that time, there was also like television without pity was a thing, and people mm-hmm. were getting hired out of that. But that was just, you know, a community run organization. Yeah. But it's like, we- you can, all the advice we're giving people now is like, go out and do some work. When the advice we were given are like blog some stuff, like we used to tell, or I mm, used to be told, yeah. like start your own blog or something. And now I think that's like no, I would the not. Opposite I would not start idea. your own blog at this point. At this point, but we do know colleagues of ours who run sites of varying uh, quality have sold their sites for quite a lot of money. But they got they started those sites years and years ago and poured a lot of resources yeah. into them, and uh, it ain't easy. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you. Sp- 
spend years breaking your back and then maybe you sell it. But I don't know if those things are, you know, likely targets to sell anymore. I don't know why people bought them to begin with. I know nothing about the economics of blogs, but which is why I work for a major media company where I don't have to know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It is weird to realize like how, you know, Twitter didn't exist when we started doing this. Tumblr mm. didn't exist. It's, it's so different. Yeah, I also, you know, it's funny, I, I've edited a site before, but even when I edited it, I still know nothing of the economics involved. As a writer, it's sort of my uh, prerogative, or, you know, not that's not the right word, it's my luxury, really, not to uh, have to know anything about the economics of what keeps these sites afloat. I, I do what I, I write what I gotta write, and uh, do what I gotta do. I mean, there are sites that I have been predicting the death of for years and years and years and years because it was like, oh, this can't possibly last. There are too many film websites out there that can't all go. And, you know, some have closed down, but a lot of them are still out there. And like you, David, I don't know the economics of what makes them run, but I think a lot of it is passion. I think a lot of people are doing other jobs and running their sites and they have really devoted audiences. And there's a really, yeah, that's a valid way to engage with film online. I mean, it's... You could tweet about it all the time and be engaged. Like there's there's so many voices in film Twitter or film world online that I value and I have no idea if they're paid for it or not. Yeah. But if yeah, you want to you could do like two hundred and fifty different podcast episodes with three of your friends. Yeah. And then watch them all get crazy magazine jobs. I mean, you're the one who left this city, man. Yeah, you're I mean, living, yeah. I think you're we can I think we can both us. agree that our jobs. You cannot have our jobs without being in New York or L.A. Like, no, I a- mean, the it, yes and no. I could do my job. I mean, I, I work in an office. I work in a cubicle uh, in Midtown. I go to the office all day, five days a week. Everybody at work, we could do our jobs many in the world. We're all on Slack. We all chat at each yeah. other. Um, we have meetings every once in a while, of course, but um, it's preserving sort of an old world culture. However, that being said... Um, it's just about sort of being in that culture, even beyond the logistics of seeing screenings and hosting events or whatever else um, that requires you to be in New York. There is just this sort of this sort of culture, like uh, it's the nucleus and your protons are spinning around it, colliding into others. It's, you really, even with Twitter and everything else, um, you're just too much on the outside of it if you're not in New York or L.A. Um, Dave, counterpoint? But, I mean, not really. If there's one thing that I know was really good for me in my whatever career I had you know, in my like early 20s, it was just do everything I could possibly do, work all the time, and then go to all the parties after I was done working. And like honestly, I think that's like the best way to just get involved in anything yeah, is like people. find your community, and then that that community will find the thing that's special in you and you'll become the puzzle piece of it. But after doing all of that, then you were able to move to Colorado and still have a job because you had made those connections already. He got that job in New York, and then he just yeah. like, let him do it somewhere else. I did. I got that job in New York because I knew somebody was also from Colorado. So it's wow. just a roll of the dice either way. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, I got my first job because it was a Wesleyan alum who was leaving the job and wanted to pass it on to another Wesleyan alum. Which is how Harvard men run the world. This is my version of that. <laughs> it's all and, nepotism. Uh, I've gone to Columbia almost two full times, and I don't think anyone from there has done me anything. But uh, Damn! What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's possible to, to be successful anywhere on Earth, but it definitely 
is, is unless you're writing about where you're from and it's part of your perspective and is unique, it's certainly not a disadvantage to be in a place where your industry is. And finally, if you've got a good story idea and it's less about movies and more about the people who make them and maybe about Hollywood history or the Oscars or anything like that, pitch it to me. I'll be happy to hear from you. I may not use it, but I will be happy to hear from you because new voices, like I said, make things valuable and they can come from all over the place if you've got a good story and you can write well. Yeah, and as the person who's approving all the comments on fightinginthewarroom.com, you could put your essays in there. I'm not going to not approve them. And yeah, Dave, apparently relevant. if you email... Uh, Dave, where did that email come from that we read that sponsored this or, or sort of sparked the segment? It was a comment on fightinginthewarroom.com. It was a comment oh, on fightinginthewarroom.com. Yeah, so... I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we're necessarily the people that you need to see your stuff, but uh, uh, <laughs> everyone else is, is just as accessible as we are, so... Uh, if you try hard enough, you can certainly get your, your writing, whatever it is you have to say, into the right hands. Um, one other question this guy asked, I don't know if any of us have good answers, which is what are some of the reasons that writers leave publications? Oh, well, I, he mentioned Little White Lies in his email, and I left Little White Lies because I had to. Because um, you got a new job. I got a new job, and I, uh, uh, Little White Lies was amazing. I love that magazine to pieces. I am a lifetime subscriber, uh, but... My new job or that I took at Rolling Stone um, did not support me having another full-time job, or you know, almost not a full-time job, but another sort of salaried job somewhere um, at another magazine, uh, which made sense, and I had to make a choice. And unfortunately, as much as I love Little White Lies, it, it, I really couldn't not make that choice. Uh, so that's one reason. Yeah, I mean, I left Cinema Blend for multiple reasons, one of which was that I got a new job and was, you know, offered a job that I was interested in. And, you know, staying in one place for a long time is not, not, not always a healthy thing to do for your career. Like, if you feel like there's a limit of what you can do, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, leaving a job is a hard thing to do because in a lot of cases you don't know if there's another one left. But I think a lot of the way that websites function is to really clearly define their identity. And so maybe if you feel like you're not part of that identity or that's not what you're interested in doing anymore, I yeah, think that's people, a good reason There's to such job. high turnover in our line of work, I feel such like. Such high turnover. Like people are always like, you know, work there for a year and see if you like it. I'm like, wait, working for anywhere for working anywhere for a year would be like a record for me. <laughs> uh, Matt Patches has worked in two different places within the last year or so. He's a, uh, you know, we'll talk bad about him behind his back, but you know, yeah, no, he's I mean, he's not the only one. Um, no, <laughs> there's a lot of turnover in this business. Uh, I think that that's probably true anywhere in the digital sphere where things are changing so quickly. Um, it's really hard to find some place where you feel like you're at home. Um, and, you don't want to not get comfortable. I don't think you ever want to get too comfortable anywhere for the sake of your own work and for your peace of mind. But like where you can just really feel like you are building something and a part of the team there and are not necessarily at risk um, of, you know, you're always at risk of being fired. But you know what I mean? There's a difference between like massive layoffs coming and you being part of a sale or something like that. And then just then deciding they don't need you anymore. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, David, you were part of a website that uh, was shorter lived than it deserved to be because of all of those corporate reasons you were talking about. Yeah. And like, you know, that was that was what it was. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There are there are other environments. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there's just a lot of a lot of turnover in this business. But I, I people I don't know. I've never left the job because I just didn't like it. and I had nowhere else to go. I've only left jobs because my job was eliminated or I was offered a different one that was appealing to me. So, Dave, you got any stories? 
Um, I've only been fired once, and it was as a magazine layout artist for Puppy Fair magazine. What? And I had that job for three weeks directly out of college. Like, I went from graduation to, like, my first day. Um, You were a terrible layout artist? Um... uh, she wanted me to like prove that I was okay by laying out the like newsletter and told me to do it by raw coding HTML. So I started, and then when I wasn't done in an hour, she said that the other girl was faster. And yikes! That was whoa! That. that was like your first day. No, no, I was like three three weeks into like actually laying out the magazine, oh. and then she's like, "Code this," and I'm like, oh, "Okay." Because I didn't know how to code. I just didn't know it was a thing. <laughs> but I also know pikas. It's a long story. Wow. Did, uh, did any of us uh, get fired in, in, during, in 2008 when like so many people in New York lost their jobs? No. That was, I think that was before I started. I, uh, I was at Cinema Blend by then. I, had, I started full-time at Cinema Blend in September 2008. Mm. And uh, lucky for me, I was one of two full-time employees. So I guess they, I couldn't really get fired. I worked at an Apple store, which uh, at least back then I felt was impervious to recessions because that was even before the iPhone. No, the, right after the iPhone. Yeah, no matter how much uh, money people didn't have, it seemed like they still found a way to have enough to buy iPhones. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then make you fix them. Yeah. Um, I think I had some delayed payments from some outlets, but I like talked to the editors and we like figured it out and that all got sorted out. But yeah, 2008 was rough. We lucked out, and though. I think now we're just reminiscing. Do no. we have any solid advice <laughs> no, for people? No. Uh, solid advice to people? Become a lawyer. Become a doctor. Do make something food, else. Do something that people will always need. If you don't really want to do this as a career, live somewhere cheap and write about television. That seems like a pretty good way to live. I think that's what Dave's yeah. doing. To live like Dave. <laughs> Ignore like me and me. David. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will not have a re- review again this week because coming out in addition to The Witch are things that we don't care about or haven't seen, so far as I can tell. Uh, well, no, David, did, David, have you seen Race? Nope. Me neither. I haven't been invited. I haven't to been it. invited. It's not, uh, I would have seen Race if, if it were an option available to me, but I have It's not Race invited. and Risen, the movie in which Joseph Fiennes plays Jesus. Fuck so Risen. I would not see Risen under any that Fascinating week. Um, anyway, we'll be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. Spell my first name, D-A-7-E. That's also my Twitter handle. I write at geek.com and latino-review.com. You could also find all of us and the podcasts I do about comics and Game of Thrones at fightinginthewarroom.com, where you could leave comments that, as we've shown today... We give a lot of thought to if they are thoughtful, which of course we know they are because you're all amazing. Leave some comments. Yeah. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can also find my reviews on Slate. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, where I say mean things about the late Justice Scalia, I'm afraid. Um, uh, he said mean things about you too. He, I'm sure he would have had he known me. But also, I'm saying mean things about Ted Cruz, who has definitely said mean, pointed things about at least my kind. Um, anyway, sometimes talk about movies too. Uh, you got those and, New York values. Yeah, and we talk about movies all together on Facebook and Fighting in the War Room. Uh, 
I'm Katie Rich. Uh, my dad saw Ben Carson in a grocery store today. Just for your book. <laughs> my life. Uh, technically, it was the sandwich shop next door to the grocery store. South Carolina's a good place right now. Anyway, uh, you can follow, you can find me at vanityfair.com or follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A D E Y R C H. And we're also all on Twitter at F I T W R, where we will talk to you, talk to each other, and talk about this week's lightning round question, which was In honor of race, who could direct a historical biopic and make you actually want to watch it? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Once I finish this witness, this will convey just what I mean. I mean, it's evident that I'm irrelevant to society. That's what you're telling me. Penitentiary would only hire me. Curse me till I'm dead. Church me with your fake prophesizing that I'ma be just another slave in my head. Institutionalized manipulation and lies. Reciprocation of freedom only live in your eyes. You hate me, don't you? I know you hate me just as much as you hate yourself. Jealous of my wisdom and cards I dealt. Watching me as I pull up, fill up my tank, then pill out. Muscle cars like pull ups, show you what these big wheels about. I, black and successful, this black man meant to be special. Cat skins on my radar, bitch, how can I help you? How can I tell you I'm making a killing? You make me a killer, you make